Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out about fungi and how they can take over and adapt to environments. Now fungi can do some pretty amazing things and cause some pretty nasty effects in humans. So how can we break them down better and learn how to treat them? Plus, the way fungi can learn to take over plants is interesting because sometimes they don't want to get rid of them at all, but they want to work alongside them. We've seen the evolution of fungi in process. Fungi have an interesting reputation. Humans have long consumed all kinds of mushrooms for various purposes, not just for nutrition. And when we think about fungi, that's normally where our brain goes to, but it's way more than that. And fungi as a form of life on Earth is immensely diverse and also one that's fascinating in its both complexity and its ability to interact and sometimes harm humans. There's all kinds of mycotoxins. These are toxins produced by several types of fungi that can be pretty dangerous to forms of life, including humans, mammals, plants, and microorganisms. If you see a crop or some fruit with a fungi growing on it, it's often a bad sign. If you've ever tried to grow your own flowers or fruit, you will be familiar with the constant efforts that you have to take to keep the fungi infections and fungal invaders from spreading and damaging your lovely flowers or juicy tomatoes. This is one of the things that you always have to be concerned about, this constant battle, not just between humans, microbes and viruses, or animals and plants and viruses and bugs, but also of fungi. Fungi are fascinating because, well, not only can they be toxic, but sometimes this potentially harmful mycotoxin can be repurposed for some different benefits. And that's what researchers from Tokyo University of Science have been investigating. Now, they recently published in the journal Microbiology Open by lead author of this paper, Megumi Mita, and a number of others from Tokyo University, one way to take a potentially dangerous mycotoxin, patulin, and adapt this into a way that could actually be helpful for humans. Now, patulin is a harmful mycotoxin that's produced by fungi. You normally will find it on damaged fruits, fruits that have a bruise or a cut or something on them, on something like an apple, pear, or a grape. Now, when the researchers in Japan were starting to investigate these types of fruit and the fungi on it, they found a new type of fungal strain. What was interesting about this long filamentous fungal strain is that it can actually help degrade patulin by making it less toxic. One other way to think about it is transforming it into a bunch of less toxic substances. This is cool because it helps us understand how we can see ways for countering patulin that can be found in nature, which means that we can better understand how to control and manage patulin toxicity as we see it across our world, on our crops and other places. Now, when you have an environment that doesn't have good hygienic methods, particularly around food production, it's really possible for patulin to take hold. Now, once this patulin gets into a spot, then it, it can spread because many of these fungi species tend to grow on damaged or decaying fruit. 
particularly apples or apple byproducts. And once they're on those fruit, then they can spread through the chain. For instance, contaminating not just the apples themselves, but any of the subsequent products like apple sauce, apple juice, apple jams, and ciders. So any of the sites that are producing these goods and or having this risk of patulin developing really want to try and stamp it out. And it's not a nice thing to have to deal with because it can be responsible for all kinds of health hazards. Nausea, lung congestion, ulcers, even intestinal hemorrhages. Now, in severe cases, you can get DNA damage, immunosuppression, increased cancer risks. Patulin toxicity can go from a mild stomachache to something pretty nasty indeed. So, as a result, lots of countries actually put restrictions on permitted levels of this toxicity in food products. Basically, they don't want it getting into their environment and spreading and causing more damage, plus causing damage to the people inside of their area. And this is important particularly for baby foods because babies are incredibly vulnerable at the best of times and when faced with something as toxic and potentially damaging as patulant, well, you really want to keep it out of baby food. Especially because a lot of the time, crushed fruits and vegetables often get made into baby purees. So again, sort of a natural area for patulant to develop. Now, when you try and treat patulant toxicity, you can normally have to go into oxygen therapy, immunotherapy, detoxification, or other types of therapies. And these are pretty intense, especially for an infant. So, obviously, the better way is to look at a more efficient way of mitigating the patulant toxicity in the first place in foods. This is researchers from Tokyo University of Science, the US and Japan, including Associate Professor Toshiko Furaya and others their research team have been investigating. They screened soil microorganisms, mainly to see if they could find anything that would help fight back against this patulin toxicity. They cultured a whole range of different microorganisms from 510 soil samples. They took these soil samples from areas that are patulin rich, figuring that if something managed to survive in an environment that is flooded with patulin, well, they must have figured out a strategy for dealing with it. And in these 510 samples, they did find some that were actually thriving in this patulin toxin rich environment. They then designed a screening experiment where they used high-performance liquid chromatography to determine which of these were surviving and what were the most effective and actually not just surviving but fighting back against that patulin toxicity, turning it into a bunch of other less harmful substances. Now, they identified a particular filamentous fungal or mold strain by the name of Acrimonium sp or TUSMM1. It belongs to the genera Acrimonium. And when they see this particular stream in action, they found it was actually degrading the patulin into a much more manageable form. Now, the way in which it does this is by transforming any absorbed patulin into disoxypatulinic acid. It's a compound that's much less toxic than patulin, and it's created by basically adding hydrogen atoms alongside the toxin itself. And when they started this research, there was only one other filamentous fungal strain that had been ever found to actually affect patulin in this way. The added benefit is that it actually helps degrade it into a form of acid that can be dealt with and treated rather than the actual fungi toxin itself.
they actually found that some of the compounds secreted by these TOS MM1 cells can transform patulin into other molecules. And by mixing patulin with extracellular secretions of these TOS MM1 cells and then observing them using the high-performance cytochromatography technique, they can observe all kinds of degradation products being made as the patulin itself breaks down. Another way to think about it is this TOS MM1 is dissolving or changing this patch form, transforming it bit by bit, casting off bits at a time into new compounds. Further chemical analysis shows that the main agent responsible for this transformation breakdown of the patchlin outside the cells was a relatively thermally stable but really reactive compound with a low molecular weight. Now, this is really cool because it shows a way that you can mitigate and destroy, or pull apart, for want of a better word, a really nasty fungal toxin. And it's found by looking for things in the environment that are already trying to fight back and live with this fungal toxin, patulin, and find ways that that can be adapted into other forms of treatment, but also other molecular processes that could be used in all other kinds of coatings and also treatments as well. This is pretty cool because it can help give researchers a new way to fight back against what is otherwise a pretty nasty fungal toxin. This research is published in the journal Microbiology Open with lead author Ms. Padepa Nagumi Mita and other researchers from Tokyo University of Science. can be broken down, dissolved, and dealt with pretty nicely. But the next tale is one in a bit more of a science fiction vein. One of the things that you probably have seen fungal invasions in is all kinds of science fiction video games, movies, and television shows. These spores coming in, taking over, invading an environment, planet, species, turning the hosts into zombies or some other thing. This is the stuff of science fiction. But researchers from the University of Copenhagen have published in the journal Environmental Microbiology with lead author Christopher Buchhade an interesting example of a fungi invading and how they actually take over a living host and what strategies they use when they're invading something. Now, this is, of course, not talking about fungi taking over humans, rather something a bit more subtle than that. And biologists have long known mushrooms of the genus Mycena, commonly known as like bonnet mushrooms, are something that you'll see living off hosts all the time on dead trees and plants. But what the University of Copenhagen researchers have shown is that it's not just the dead that these fungi take over. They can find their ways into young, healthy trees and plants especially where they try to cooperate. Now, this is really important because now we have made a leap of our understanding of what roles fungi actually play in our ecology, not as science fiction monsters, but as an important part 
of the ecosystem or our planet. Because fungal foot spores float through the air. These thin strands of their mycelia creep along surfaces. They'll look for opportunities to grow. They seek out defenseless hopes to wrap themselves around in webs of fungal growth. Now the fungi, once they've invaded a host, can use, of course, to feed themselves, but then also to spread, just in the same way that maybe a virus does. Now reality isn't like a dramatic science fiction movie, so you can relax a little bit. But actually these mycenae, bonnet mushrooms for example, are targeting, in a way, living creatures. Now, they have been normally thought of as a septotrophic, a decomposer of non-living organic matter. This is really, really important function in our world. Without this, our world would be full of junk. We need fungi to actually help break down and decompose everything organic matter-wise on our planet. So it's important. But these researchers have shown that this particular genus of fungi, which has long been considered a decomposer, is actually in the midst of a change. It's making the leap to become something that feeds not just on the decomposing, but even on living hosts. And they found this using DNA studies. They found that the Mycenae fungare consistently found in the roots of living plant hosts. This suggests that the bonnets are in a way learning to adapt and change. Not just becoming a decomposer of non-living metal, but actually invaders of living plants as well, just in the right conditions. Now, what they've shown is that there can also be signs of beginning to act not as decomposers, but as of mutualists. Because they're going in to a living creature, it's no good for them, if that plant then dies, they want it to live. So they'll begin to act, i.e. in symbiosis with the trees. Now, this means that the Mycenae are not science fiction monsters. They're out to look after themselves, that's for sure, but they're also out to keep their host, in this case, a plant alive. This kind of creates uh, some kind of what we would consider like an evolutionary courtship where they develop traits which benefits themselves, but also benefits the host plant that they're trying to get in good with. They see that some mycenae appear to be actually able to exchange nitrogen and act as a dispensable nutrient for the carbon from the plants. Once having penetrated into a living plant, the fungi can choose a couple of different strategies. If you weren't thinking carefully, you could just suck all the life out of the host but that means you have to then find somewhere else to live because that host will decompose. You can lie in wait, hoping that that plant will die soon and then feast upon it because you're already there. But acting in a mutual way, in a symbiotic type way, is really, really interesting. And it seems that some of the mycenae species are actually trying to figure out a strategy to collaborate with the plant, not just wait for it to decompose or take it over. And this is interesting because what we're seeing in the DNA studies is not actually a finely tuned, well-working symbiotic relationship between these two species, but one that's got some pieces here and there. If you look at another type of fungi, like the Amanita genus, it's well known for living alongside plants. Now, it developed that skill millions of years ago.
And Amanita has actually lost the ability to survive without their host. And that's how it's normally we treat fungi. You divide them into mutualistic, parasitic, or saprophytic. Ones that work in collaboration, mutualistic. Ones that are parasitic, that take over. Or ones that are saprophytic, ones that wait for decomposition. But Mycena seems to fall between these ecological niches. Now, maybe these lines of division are arbitrary and it's not something hard and fast. Certainly true if we look at this case. And some of these Mycena have found a solution that can make them work in different environments in the right role that best suits their needs at that time. And this involved a lot of both DNA but also isotopic analysis. And when they do that, they can see that some of that Mycena are acting not just as one or the other, but as both decomposers, saprotrophic decomposers, as well as mutualistic feeders. And in some occasional cases, they've even seen some examples of parasitic behavior. So this means this Mycena are really opportunists picking the strategy that the best suits their right moment that they're exposed to. Unlike, say, Amanita, which is precisely optimized to grow alongside a particular host, Mycena can survive without needing plants. It can survive without invading plants either, and it can survive by decomposing dead things. It just depends on what it needs to deploy at a certain point in time. Now, one of the favorable conditions that the Mycena seem to seek out is actually related to humans. And it's reasonable to believe that maybe humans have played a role in guiding this adaption. Because a lot of the time we farm crops thanks to agriculture, but this creates what we call a monoculture plantation, which is very different to what you find in the wild in a forest. All things planted of one particular crop is not normal in the natural world. And that gives fungi a pretty unique condition set to adapt. Some fungi seem to actually seize upon this opportunity. Specialist fungi that thrived in old growth forests create real difficulty for some of that some of opportunities like Mycenae to settle in because there's already a specialized species living there that's designed for that particular tree or environment. A homogenous plantation though gives the Mycenae a chance to find its niche for itself where other specialized fungi have yet to establish themselves. The same applies even in places like the Arctic or maybe an area where animals are crazy. These are changing environments, one where you can actually get the fungi to get in first. If you have a flexible fungi like Mycena, you can pick the strategy you need to best survive and exploit that niche. The fact that that niche is created in itself by the remnants of human activity is also important. So the plants and the fungi are growing alongside of each other, but they're grown by humans and the fungi are responding to the plants that we grow in the environments that we create. The ecosystem and food web is incredibly complex and it is very much interacting with each other over thousands of years. But it's amazing to see how with DNA sequencing and PCR, you can actually see these changes in the DNA of a fungal species happening in real time as it adapts and changes. It becomes more opportunistic, but also mutualistic, breaking down conceptions of what we thought a fungi could do. It's a great paper published in the Journal of Environmental Microbiology with the University of Copenhagen researchers, including lead author Christopher Bugerhardt. 
This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From fungi evolving to become more mutualistic, to ways that fungal toxins can be better broken down and found out ways to counter them by studying soil samples. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.